starting a new series today. Uh, it's the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're really looking forward to just seeing what the Lord is going to bring out of this book and what He's going to take from this particular letter and deposit into us, because that's what, it, that's what it's all about. It's about what God has put in Scripture being taken by the Holy Spirit and deposited in us, written on our hearts and in our minds. And some of you may ask a question, why do we go through books methodically? Why do we, instead of just preaching topically, why do we choose to take a book and work through it? And uh, I just want to give you, before we get into it today, just a couple of reasons why we do that. The first one is that that's the way the Bible was written. When God gave us the Word of God, He didn't give it to us in topics. He gave it to us in books. The Bible is a collection. It's like a library of 66 books. And so if God gave it to us that way, then I believe and we believe that that's the way we should read it if we're going to actually get what God wants us to get out of it in its fullness. And so not only that, but it also ensures that we get the whole counsel of God. You know, if we preach topically, we can cherry pick. You know, we can say, what are we going to preach today? We're going to preach on this. And we miss out on things that God has put in His Word that He wants us to get because we're the ones that are choosing and deciding what we're going to speak. And so it really helps us to emphasize what God emphasizes. It's easy for us, if we just preach topically, it's easy for us to emphasize things that actually aren't emphasized in Scripture. Um, I've, I often minister and, and uh, work with pastors around the nation. And I've often sat down with them and I've asked them, what are you preaching every Sunday? If I was to come to your church for 52 weeks and write down everything that you're preaching each week, what would the content of what you're giving God's people be over a year? Would it match what we see in Scripture? And particularly in this country, where the pastors are honest, you can quickly see that they are emphasizing things that Scripture does not place such great emphasis on. And they're minoring on things that Scripture actually majors on. And the reason that's happening is because instead of preaching word by word, chapter by chapter, through the books of the Bible, they are picking what they want to preach. What do the people want to hear? And so we want to avoid that. Not only that, but when we study a book through, we really get the tone of Scripture. We pick up the tone of, of Scripture, which is so easy for us to miss if we just a verse here, a verse here, a passage here, a passage there. We can so easily miss that. And so this is the way that we believe God wants us to approach Scripture. And so just to give you a little bit of an understanding of why we do it this way, I realize not every church does do it this way, but we believe that this is the best way for us to give you a real understanding of what Scripture teaches. And that's vital for our spiritual growth. It's vital for our standing in the faith. It's vital for us, for our knowledge of God, that we look at the whole counsel of Scripture. And so today, we're starting this new series on the letter to the Hebrews, a wonderful letter, so full of truth, well, the Bible is truth, so full of wonderful truths, let me put it that way, and wonderful insights into the truth of God's Word. 
What I want to do today as we start this series is I, I just want to give you an overview of the book. You know, uh, how many of you use Google Maps? Or you look at a map and you're going to a new area. You know, you can type in that area. And I know that we're very lazy today and so we don't really have to do what I'm about to say because of the way Google Maps works. But we can type in where we're wanting to go and then we can just say, take us there. And we just blindly drive following the instructions. But let's say, as Google does do, particularly here in Zimbabwe, um, gets you lost. What do you have to do? You have to zoom out and try and find out where am I in relation to where I want to go. And if, you, if you're so focused in, if, you, if you're just looking at the detail of where you want to go, you're, you're zoomed right in, you can't really get the picture of where you're trying to go. And uh, so not long ago, I went down into the Zambezi Valley area and Google got me lost. And so I had to do this. I had to zoom out, see where I am, see where I'm trying to go. And it was only when I zoomed out that I was really able to get an understanding of how I needed to proceed. And so that's what we want to do today. We're going to take a zoomed out look at the book of Hebrews. And then in the weeks and months to come, we're going to zoom in and we're going to get the details. So today is the overview. All right, so are you ready for it? So I want to start by just asking a number of questions. The first one is, who wrote the book of Hebrews? We're just going to get a bit of a background into this book. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, it's up on the screen there. We don't really know. No one knows. And even if you go back into church history, you will find that the early church fathers, even they weren't absolutely sure of who wrote this book. But many names have been put forward. Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, amongst others. Luke has been suggested. But we don't really know. I don't believe it was Paul. Let me say that. And there's reasons why I don't believe that. Because just of the way the letter has been constructed is very different to the way we see the letters of Paul constructed. And then also, when we look at what was written in, we'll see that the writer is referring to the apostles and he speaks as if he received from the apostles what he's putting down. So it, it's like he didn't get it firsthand from the Lord, he got it from the apostles. And so as we go through, you'll see some of these facts coming out, why I don't believe it was Paul. But whoever it was, the writer was clearly a Jew, number one. He was very well versed in the Old Testament. He was highly influenced by Paul's teaching. We can see that. A lot of Paul's, um, just Paul's thoughts, the way Paul would put things come through in this letter, which is why I believe many people have said it must be Paul, because there is such an influence of Paul seen in it. We also see that this man who wrote this letter was well acquainted with Timothy. So he was a part, that tells us, he was a part of the whole um, Paul's sphere of influence. Um, he knew, I'm sure he knew all those that Paul work, worked with. We can also see that he was a very well-educated person. In fact, Bible scholars tell us that this book is the best Greek in the New Testament. It was written in the best Greek. And so we're looking at a person who's learned, who's educated, and has a very brilliant mind. And we also can see that he was well-known to the people that he was writing to. All right, so just giving you a little bit of background here. I think someone like Apollos might be a good candidate. I'm not going to live and die on it. 
But I think he could be a good candidate because when we look at, at Scripture, we see Paul, Apollos was well-versed in the Old Testament. He had a tremendous understanding of who Jesus was. He was a, a brilliant mind. He was a powerful orator. He was a great debater. And also, he had a very powerful ministry towards Jews, who this book is written to. This book is written to the Jews. So, let's have a look at the next question. When was it written? We're not exactly sure, but we know that it was before A.D. 70 because he refers to the temple in Jerusalem as though it was still standing. And uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. Possibly it was at the start of Nero's persecution of the Christians in Rome. The emperor Nero started a persecution around about A.D. 64. And so... It's it very possible that this letter was written towards the beginning of that. So that's why I've put there sort of AD 64, 65, somewhere in that region. We don't know exactly, but it gives us a ballpark. Who was it written to? Well, I already told you it was written to Jews who believed in Jesus. This is a, a letter to the Hebrews. That's all that was put on this letter, to the Hebrews. And so that's why we have the title, To the Hebrews. We can also see that it was written to Jews because of the way it refers to the Old Testament. I mean, this book is just full of the Old Testament. And uh, not only that, but the language that the writer uses when he refers to Old Testament figures, he refers to them as our forefathers. And so there's just evidence throughout this book that this was written by a Jew to Jews. Where were these Jews located? We don't know exactly, but there's a, a clue that we get in the book, near the end of the book, in chapter 13, when the writer says, those from Italy send you greetings. So it, it suggests to us that it was written to Jews who lived in Rome, in Italy. And he wasn't writing from Italy, but he was writing to people in Italy. And he had some people who were from Italy with him. And so he's conveying greetings from them to their, their own countrymen, as it were. So that just gives you a little bit of background. Let's move on now and ask the next question. Why was it written? Well, it seems that these Hebrews, these Jews that he was writing to, who had at one time suffered for their faith and suffered considerably. He talks about this um, in chapter 10 where he says that they were uh, in jail, they were imprisoned for their faith. They had been through times when they had uh, things that they owned had been confiscated because they were Christians. And so they had endured suffering in the past for their faith. And yet, it seems from what we see in this letter, that the same group of people were in danger of apostatizing. They, it seems like they had grown cold towards God to some degree. They had stagnated in their spiritual growth. And they were not where they should be in terms of their spiritual development, considering the time that they had been in the faith. And we'll see as we go through this, these, through this letter, we'll see that this is the case. Uh, the, the writer says to them, you're still unskilled in the word of righteousness. You're still babies in Christ. And he says, by now you should be teachers. And so he, he almost rebukes them for the fact that they are not where they should be in their spiritual life, having given the time that they've been in the faith. And so the, the, um, the hint that we get is that they had not been applying themselves to God's word in the way that they had needed to do. And that's why spiritually they had stagnated. 
We also see him talking about the fact that they were in danger of drifting away. In danger of drifting away. Can you believe this? This is people who had been persecuted for their faith, had stood through those trials, and yet here they are now in danger of drifting away. He talks about the fact that hardness of heart could be creeping in amongst them, and that there could be unbelief and doubt beginning to rise in their hearts, and a temptation to turn away from Christ and depart from the faith. And uh, he also warns them against despising and neglecting the salvation that God has brought through Jesus Christ. So we see a group of people that aren't actually in a very good place. They needed strengthening. And so this is what this letter is all about. People that were growing weary, were forgetting certain key truths, and were being overcome by the struggles of being Christians, losing sight of what their faith was really about and who Jesus truly is. And we see in one part of this letter where the writer even warns them of being like Esau. Esau sold his birthright just for a pot of stew. And the writer warns them not to be like Esau, not to exchange the eternal glory of God, the eternal life, this great salvation, for just some temporary relief or pleasure. And so we'll see these kind of exhortations coming through this book continuously. And it just gives us insight into the kind of people, their spiritual state, where they were in their walk with God at that particular time. And so the main theme of this letter is a call for endurance in the faith, even in the face of suffering, hardship, persecution, trials. A call to persevere for long-suffering, and for diligence in the things of God. And not only that, but to put proper value, to place proper value on the grace that God has given us in Christ Jesus, so that we would hold firmly to the hope that we have in Christ. That's really the message that comes through. Now, the writer does three things. He uses three methods, we could say, to convey this message and to deliver this message in this letter. Number one, he sets out to show who Jesus is. Secondly, he explains what Jesus has accomplished for his people through his suffering for them. And he, he looks specifically from the perspective of the old covenant and the new covenant. Third, the third thing that the, the writer does is he exhorts. This, this letter is full of exhortation. He exhorts, as we said, people towards diligence in the matters of God, towards taking the things of God seriously, towards growth and fruitfulness, endurance, as we've said, and to draw near to God. So there's a real call uh, for people to come towards God, not to stand aloof, not to stand off, not to be apathetic, lukewarm, but to draw near to God in their trials and in all the challenges that they face. And he also does this. Throughout the letter, we're going to see some very strong warnings. Strong warnings about not doing what he's exhorting us to do. And we'll see these warnings come through and we will deal with them as we go through the letter. 
As he does this, he repeatedly draws from the Old Testament. So this, as I said, this is a letter full of the Old Testament. And it's going to give us tremendous insight into how, as people in the New Covenant, use the Old Covenant. How people who are in the New Testament apply the Old Testament in our lives. So let's just have a, a little bit of a, a, a look at what comes through in this letter. Who does the writer say Jesus is? I'm just going to list these things, and then as we go through the letter, we'll be filling in the, the gaps. Who does the writer say Jesus is? Well, first of all, in chapter 1, He's the divine Son of God. In chapter 2, He's the human Son of Man. In chapter 3, He is the builder of all. In chapter 4, He's the provider of true rest. In chapter 5, He's the source of eternal salvation. In chapter 6, He's the hope that anchors our souls. In chapter 7, He's our high priest and intercessor. Chapter 8, He's the mediator of the new covenant. In chapter 9, He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In chapter 10, He's our sanctifier. In chapter 12, He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. In chapter 13, He is the eternally unchanging one. Isn't that such an incredible picture of the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's what we're going to see as we go through this book. We're going to see Jesus Christ the Lord Jesus magnified through the writing of this book in an incredible way. Not only is that what he tells us, he carries on with these other things that he points out. In chapter 1, he says that Jesus is far greater than all the prophets combined. And he also says that Jesus is far greater than all the angels. In chapter 3, he's far greater than Moses. In chapter 4, He's far greater than Joshua. In chapters 5 and 7, he's far greater than Aaron. Also in chapter 7, he's far greater than Abraham. So we just see this message coming through about the greatness of who Jesus Christ is. In chapter 8, who is Jesus in chapter 8? The mediator of a far better covenant than the covenant that came through Moses. And the writer is going to spend a lot of time showing how much greater this covenant, this new covenant is, than the old covenant that God gave the children of Israel. He's going to say it's founded on far better promises. It, is, it has a far better and greater high priest. It has a far greater tabernacle. Far more perfect sacrifice for sins far better benefits and he'll say he'll show us that it is actually the replacement of the old covenant in other words it makes the old covenant obsolete like an old pair of shoes when you get a new pair of shoes what do you do to the old pair of shoes you discard it and he's going to say that that's really what the new covenant does to the old covenant it's coming to replace it and therefore it's made the old obsolete so in sh showing us all of this, there is a question that the author is going to be asking of us. 
And I just want to bring this question to you today. And this is the question that comes through as we read this, this whole letter. Why would you exchange the greater for the lesser? The prototype for the real thing. And go back to the old covenant. That's what he's asking the Jews of that time. Why would you abandon the Christian faith for anything else? What is there in life that is greater than what we gain through Christ? Why would we throw away what He died to give us? Why would we value anything more than Him? And that's the whole question that He's going to be bringing to us as we go through this letter. And, you know, so many people today, there's so many people today that are departing the faith. There's a buzzword going around where people are saying, you know, we're deconstructing our faith. Why would you want to deconstruct something that has such great value? There's only one reason. People have not seen what this is all about. They may have been in church. They may have heard sermon after sermon. They may have been in life groups. But they've never really seen what this is all about. And this is what this whole book is to do. This is what it's been written for. It's to help us to see what this is all about. This faith that we hold. This hope that we have. This Jesus that we believe in. What is it all about? And if we really have a glimpse into it, there's no way we'll ever depart from this faith. That we'll ever turn our back on Him. No one can do that without when they've seen who the Lord is. So let's just sum up and just preview what we're going to learn and gain from studying this, this letter. I'm just preparing your hearts and minds for what's going to come. Apart from gaining real insight into, way, into the way the Old Testament and the New Testament are linked together, the way that they relate together, we're also going to gain insight into the greatness of Jesus Christ. We've already seen that. And who He really is. Do you know how important it is that we have a proper understanding and vision of who Jesus is? Do you know that salvation is based on that? Unless people see Jesus for who He is, they cannot be saved. There has to be an opening of the eyes of our hearts to fully understand and see Him for who He is before we'll ever follow Him. People don't believe in Jesus. People don't follow Him. People are not really concerned about what He taught. Why? Because they've never really seen who He is. And we live in a world like that today. But you know who we are? We are witnesses for Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors for His name, His glory. We are His ambassadors. And if we don't have a great, clear vision of who He is, we will never be able to be ambassadors for Him. We will never be able to witness and bear witness for Him. And we will not have a strong faith. We'll have a faith that is easily shaken. And so this letter is going to give us such a great insight into who Jesus is. And that's my prayer that as we walk through what has been written in this letter, 
that the, the Holy Spirit will take the words off those pages and He will open the eyes of our hearts to really see who Jesus Christ is. And that's what we should be praying as we go through this series. Also, we're going to see just how central Jesus Christ is in all God's dealings with humanity. We're going to see just how central He is. Jesus is not just a side issue. He's everything. And what we're going to see, and the writer does this in such an amazing way, so inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're going to see that the entire new covenant is centered and focused in Him. You know, in the old covenant, He's going to show us, the old covenant was given by angels through Moses. So I want you just to think about this. There's, there's angels and there's Moses involved. Then there were high priests. Aaron was a high priest. And when he died, his sons took over and that went on down the generations. So we have high priests, many of them. We have sacrifices. What were the sacrifices? Bulls, goats, lambs. Shedding of blood, all these different animals were the sacrifices. And then we have messengers that God used. Prophets. Many prophets. Okay, so we have, when we look at the Old Covenant, we have angels, Moses, Aaron and the high priests, sacrifices of animals. We have animals involved. And we have prophets. It took all of those people to make this Old Covenant work. Who do we have in the new covenant? Who's the mediator of the new covenant? Jesus. Doesn't come from angels through Jesus. It comes from Jesus through Jesus. So we have Jesus, the mediator. Who's the high priest? Jesus. So we still have Jesus. Who's the sacrifice? Jesus. So we still have Jesus. Who's the messenger of the new covenant? Jesus. So do you see, God has replaced all those five things with one, Jesus. He's like, if you think of a bicycle wheel, you have the rim, you have the hub, and every spoke comes back to that hub. That is what the new covenant is like. He's right at the center of everything. If Jesus is not the center of our lives, our lives are going to be out of sync. If you have one area of your life that does not come back to Jesus Christ, if you think in terms of a bicycle wheel, you have a weakness. If, you, if, if spokes break off or they lose their attachment to the hub, what happens when you drive that, ride that bicycle down the road? You hit a bump. What happens to the rim? It bends. And when our lives, when every aspect of our lives does not come back to Jesus Christ, where He is not the center of everything, whether it's our business, whether it's our marriage, whether it's our social life, whatever it is, if He's not the center of it, we're going to have very bent and deformed lives. We have to have Him as the center. And that's what God has made Him to be. So that's the second thing we're going to see Apart from the greatness of Jesus, we're going to see the centrality of Jesus. And then we're also going to see the sufficiency of Jesus. This is 
what he says in chapter 7, verse 25. He's able to save everyone who comes to God through him to the very uttermost. He's able. That speaks about his sufficiency. Jesus Christ is sufficient for everything we need. And that means we do not need anything outside of him. When we have him, we have everything we need. Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, he said, You are complete in him. Isn't that wonderful? So we'll see the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We're also going to see, and we've talked about this a bit, so I won't belabor it again, the absolute necessity for us to endure in the faith, to be diligent in the things of God, to value Christ more than anything else, to be obedient to Him in every aspect of our lives, and never to take what God has given us in Christ for granted. To place the highest value on what God has given us. And then we're going to see this. And this, I believe, is a key, for, a key statement here. Our ability to endure in times of hardship and persecution will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which we see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Shall I say that again? Our ability to endure in times of hardship and persecution, challenges, and trials will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which we see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. The clearer vision we have of that, the clearer understanding we have of that, the stronger we are going to be. Okay, we'll become unshakable. No matter what trial comes our way, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, there will come a strength inside us that cannot be shaken. That's the faith that we see the apostles had. Why? They saw who Jesus is, and they understood what he had done for them. So, this letter that's written 2,000 years ago, although it was written to Jews by a Jew, contains in it universal and timeless truths. We're not reading an ancient document that's irrelevant to the 21st century. We are reading words that are universal and timeless. The writer in chapter 13, verse 8 said this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus that the writer all those years ago wrote about is the same today as he's always been. And he will be that way forever. What he's accomplished through his coming into this world, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to God's right hand has been accomplished. He'll say in this book, we'll see it, once and for all. What Jesus did has bearing today for everyone. It has bearing for whoever will believe in Him. It wasn't just for the Jews that this letter was written for. It's for us here, seated in this room, 
It's for us here that live in Harari 2,000 years down the road. And the covenant of which Jesus is the mediator in chapter 13 and verse 20 is referred to as the eternal covenant. That means this covenant will never end. It is just as relevant to us today as it was to the people back then. And so as we come to this wonderful truths of this letter, we need to bear in mind that this is not ancient words that really don't apply to us. These are ancient words that have the living breath of the Spirit of God in them. And as we approach these scriptures with a prayerful attitude, I have no doubt that God is going to take these words and He's going to open our hearts and He's going to give us all these things we've been talking about. And we're going to come out of the end of this series far stronger people in Christ than we've ever been in our lives. And that'll be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it be? So I want to encourage you as we start this series today to really have a sense of anticipation, a sense of desire to gain, to glean, to receive from these words everything that the Lord intends us to have. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you so much for the scriptures. We want to thank you for the gift that they are to us. So often we take it for granted, Lord. We, we have Bibles that we don't really read, that, that gather dust. But Father, the, the words that you've given us and preserved for us are your words. And so we pray, Father, for this series. We pray for ourselves as we we embark on this journey of studying the book of Hebrews. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. And we ask, Father, that you would take these words and work in us what is pleasing to you. And that you would equip us for every good thing that we need to do your will. We pray that you would give us that a vision of who Jesus is that we've never had before, Lord. More clarity in understanding what he's done for us. And Lord, that as the exhortations are read and heard, that Lord, you would give us the grace to be able to apply those things to our lives and that they would change us, that they would move us towards you in a deeper, more uh, decisive way than Lord, we've experienced in the past. So Lord, we just commit ourselves and we commit ourselves as a church to you and we ask for your grace to be multiplied to us in this coming year, for your peace to be abundantly granted to us in every circumstance. Lord, we know that there are many trials that we may go through. And Lord, we, we do remember Conlons with what they're facing even already now, just, just barely getting into the new year. Many people, Lord, in, the, in our congregations facing challenges. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us through this year, that you would use your word, make it alive to us. May it not just be words on a page, but may it be life in our hearts and minds. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you as a church today. Every member, every person that's a part of this body, Lord, we commit to you today. 
Our eyes are on you. Our hope is in you. You are our strength. You are our courage. You are our ability, Lord. You are everything that we need. And we look to you to supply for us that which is needed for us to do your will this year. So thank you, Father, that you are with us. Thank you that you are for us in every situation. Thank you, Father, for the great and precious promises that we have. Lord, make them so real to us as your people in these days. Amen.